Hello, everyone. Happy Sunday for those that are live, for those asynchronous. I hope you're having a great day. Um, I'm really excited to be with you all today. And um, for those of us that are joining for the first time, this is a space where we talk about archetypes. Um, and I feel like we've used lots of different definitions, some very broad, some very nuanced, some very maybe specific at times. But a lot of times I like to start and maybe that I feel like this is a good place to start today too. To just ask this question of what forms seem to be forming within us or within our field? What patterns seem to be patterning? What shapes seem to be shaping the way that we might move in the world right now or see things or especially looking just slightly to the horizon? Um, so that's something I'd love to ask people kind of with that idea of shape shaping, forms forming, patterns patterning, you know, what might be coming up in your field maybe this last week, looking backward a little bit, or maybe just kind of what you're feeling, like I said, on that horizon, on the edge, what feels like, ooh, there's something over there. I was kind of talking to the to everyone before I hit record that I got some things that have been like on the periphery, on the horizon. But I, they're not really quite clear and taking sh full shape yet. So I'm like, let's see what wants to come out of this container. But I'm curious if there might be other things like that for you all. And sometimes having spaces like this to talk about it and to have that space to, and if you want to, to um, and I really strongly recommend people to come off mute if they want to, to voice it and see and see if, what, what comes up. Uh, see what kind of archetypal resonances that we're feeling these days um this in this moment in this right now um yeah and see which of the archetypes wants to play uh this is a place where we are all invited to to, to speak about what's in our field but we also invite the archetypes to come into this container and maybe share a little bit more about themselves about what what they got going on about what they're looking to do in the world so we can make that connection <laughs> Thanks, Hoda. But yeah, would love to hear from people. Either drop in the chat or just drop, come off of mute. I'm going to ask myself the same question and see what wants to come up right now. And hold space. And I see Hoda's also holding space. So thank you. But yeah, love to hear it. So I'm just going to hold space to hear what's coming up for folks. Whoa. Thank you for sharing. Um, and let me know if, you, if you're okay with me using your name in the chat. But someone in the chat just said that they had an emotional release unexpectedly, which should be really powerful. And if you're feeling in the mood to speak about it, okay, great. Thank you, Annie. If you're in the mood to speak about it, um, I'd love to hear it. It's actually really interesting. This connects to something, and I don't want to like, I don't want to like pigeonhole this 
because uh, I want you to be able to express this ex- this experience however however feels appropriate to you to express. So kind of ignore <laughs> ignore if what I'm about to say doesn't really make sense. But I, I saw this quote recently, this Carl Jung quote, and I thought it was really interesting. Actually, I won't pull it up, but he used the phrase archetypal experience. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. I think he was pointing to to something specific about about how sometimes we have these experiences um, and somehow archetypes are at play. Some sort of resonance happens where th- there's an there's something about it that really makes something real to us that might be hard to make tangibly real without an archetype to bridge sort of the conceptual and the preconceptual maybe or other sort of energy and sensorial experience or words or so I'm not gonna I'll stop talking but I just wanted to to kind of say that that was that's been on my mind and was on my before this container so I'm really excited just to sort of listen to this experience if you're willing to share Annie. Yes, of course. Take take whatever time you need. Yeah. And if anyone else wants to jump in with something that's been in their field while while she's doing that, um, please do. And you did use the word just, so I don't know how how recent, but just implies pretty this is pretty fresh. So thank you for being willing at all to share. Interesting. Today has been pretty emotional for me too. Now that's fascinating. Something in the cosmic weather, perhaps. If you were, and again, hold up, I see you're typing, so please express whatever is on your mind but i'm curious like if you were to uh to describe the particular emotional sort of like if you were to describe the emotional qualities that you have been feeling like symbolically or archetypally what might what words or symbols or images might come up that's funny and he says ironic since i believe the catalyst was field tuning now look at that Hoda says, I'll say the archetype that's been most present for me is Isis. Mm. Now, does Isis feel connected at all to the emotional kind of quality that you've been feeling today? Or this sort of just, that's just more been in your field? And there might be some overlap, but I want to make sure they're not. Oh, okay, no worries. <laughs> she said she can't unmute just yet. Well, okay, now I can. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. That's okay. <laughs> Um, can you actually re-ask the question again? I missed it because the train was so loud. Oh, I was um, I was wondering if there was a connection between Isis and the emotional quality that you said you were feeling in today, and there might not be. Yeah. No, I actually felt really piqued by what you said. Um, what did you say earlier? Like, Young's archetypal... Yes, it was from that quote, and I'll see if I can pull it up, but it was this idea of, like, the archetypal experience is where we, yes. like, grace, yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's what kind of, I feel like that's how I treat the question that you asked actually at the beginning of every live container is like, okay, what's the like environment 
that's being like co-created by working with this archetype. And so, um, yeah, I feel like ISIS has been very prevalent for me and just lightly, I guess I'll anchor in what aspect of ISIS has, I feel like I've been working with or has been coloring my like archetypal experience. I feel like it's like a lunar aspect of ISIS. Um, and for me that like relates a lot to like nurturing, um, nurturing yourself, nurturing your body, nurturing your cycles, like all the, all the different cycles that we participate and are on as people, as humans in a vessel. And I also feel like, um, yeah, the presence has been pretty hard to ignore because I've just, I've been spending a lot of time with myself lately, um, which I know is kind of rare for a lot of people just because of the way that like people's day-to-day work. So I, I understand that I'm kind of like blessed right now to be able to be by myself. So, um, yeah, it's just been popping up. Her presence has been popping up in my meditations. I recently watched a YouTube, uh, video, which I'll share probably in the thread after this uh, episode, is um, Dr. Angela's symposium. And she had a video, like a 25-minute video on ISIS and how ISIS was absorbed into or sort of, I guess, kind of started collaborating with like Western mysticism um, at its height, like at its resurgence. And so, you know, just lots lots of cool things regarding ISIS. So yeah, it felt it felt on par to like bring into this container. So thanks for holding the space, guys. That's amazing. Uh, thank you so much. I have so many things that are popping up, but I actually really want to tune into you, Annie, because as you said, this feels so aligned. So I want to see if if this is feeling aligned, if you're up to it, um, with some of what you were sharing earlier. Oh, perfect. Oh my gosh. Hi. Hey. Okay. So I collected myself um, as a shock to me and all others involved, but it was really strange because when I first, like, it was like the second I joined, I just started crying, which is how I tend to like release my emotions. And I had been talking with a friend, like right before this saying, like, I've, feeling I'm probably going to cry again. So I'm fine. But I do have very expressive emotions as a person. Um, But I was talking to them. And I was like, I just noticed like a couple of hours ago, I was having this like, anxiety in my field. And I couldn't tell where it was coming from, because nothing is wrong. Um, Nothing is wrong. Everything's great. It's actually a beautiful day. Like everyone is happy. (laughs) Nothing crazy is going on. And I just couldn't really figure out where it was stemming from. But yesterday, I listened to the recording of field tuning because I have, you know, I have like a lot of things going on. So I'm an asynchronous friend. And I was listening to the recording of field tuning. And um, it was like such a powerful message. And I guess I just didn't realize how powerful at the time um and that it had kind of created this surfacing that's occurring right now but it's all tied to the idea of like self-competition um self-competition self-belief self-doubt self-care um although i feel like that that term can be overused or used in a way that isn't 
quite what I mean, but more like self-nurturing, like um, you were saying a second ago. And it's interesting that ISIS is so prevalent right now because I had just done some like inner child work. And that's like the epitome, excuse me, the epitome of self-nurturing <laughs> to me is inner child work and rem- and trying to release this like idea of self-competition and self-criticism and instead of viewing me and my versions of me as a competitive force with each other switching the idea to being a team with myself is like kind of what my healing experience is about right now and instead of like blaming or shaming or criticizing or you know whatever learning how to like celebrate and support all versions of me past present future now you know all of that and so it's just it's just very aligned to me in this moment that all of these things are happening so close together so loudly wow um Thank you so much for sharing and for being willing to be, um, you know, vulnerable on, on off of mute. Like, it's just so powerful hearing it and hearing your voice and hearing the, the genuine authenticity of it all. Like, it's just so beautiful. Um, wow. And like, there's so much of what both of you said that's, that's really standing out to me. But like, one thing that I want to just call out right away is I don't think I've actually ever or if I have, I don't remember. I don't know if I've ever heard the term self-competition, but damn, that's juicy. Woo! Like, as soon as I heard it, I was just like, I don't know if I've ever thought of it in that way, but that is potent. So thank you for, for sharing that. I don't know if there's anything more, if, you, if anything more you wanted to say on that self-competition piece, no worries if not, but like, that's a really interesting concept or phrase or, or or i guess an experience which i have experienced but i don't think i never put a name to it well thank you for having me and allowing me to speak and creating the space in which this can occur and the safety here is what allows for the vulnerability so i appreciate that more than anything um for me self-competition is like a survival skill and it stems from perfectionism and it stems from survivor's guilt because when, <laughs> sorry. Okay. When my brother was young, he passed away and I was the only remaining sibling. So I was 12 and he was 10 and I was the only one left. And so at that time, I believed that my duty as a child was to be perfect because my parents didn't have another shot at it. You know, like this was it. And mm. so I, and nobody, nobody put that on me. I put that on myself. I took that on as my like gift to them, which sounds so weird. Don't worry. I have a therapy appointment tomorrow. And I took that on as my like, you know, duty as a child to perform. And so my self competition is like you you have to constantly be better and bigger and do the most and 
be the best because there is no one after you. You're it. And, like, they can't be disappointed in you because they have no one else to be, like, proud of. So it's that's how it started. And then it, you know, evolved. But wow. I'm happy to answer, like, any questions. Like, I know I, I'm very emotional, but that's just who I am as a person. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's great. Um, wow. Yeah, that's that's so beautiful. And then, so this message really helped bring things up to the surface. And I love how you said, like, I'm actually feeling great, but this is the time where this, like, this emotion just wanted to come out and be released. And so, yeah. What, um, if you were to try to, like, put sort of an image around what you're experiencing with regards to this, this sort of this releasing right because it sounds like what you're describing mm -hmm. that you sort of know you had this pattern and you've been aware of it but you can sense it really starting to leave you at least that's what it feels like to me and so i'd love to hear if like there's an image that kind of comes up for you as you think about this this being released this thought form this sort of yeah this emotion being released if i were to like put imagery to it i would almost say that it's kind of like if you can imagine all versions of you from creation, even pre-creation, to your, you know, the end of your time on Earth and beyond. If you can imagine them all lined up from like smallest to largest, it's almost like the version of me now steps out of the line and turns to all of the other versions. And like bows, you know, like just like like this feeling of like we did it, you know, like it's okay, and thank you, you know. I and like an like a sign of respect, I guess, would be the best way for me to describe it. Wow, wow, that's an amazing image, and um, yeah, I mean, it feels I've definitely had those experiences too, where you do that inner work and you engage with those past versions of yourself. And it's so funny for me, at least how present that some of them still are in my psyche. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right that like, sometimes I love how you said like shifting to like more of the team versus a competition. Cause there have been times where I've like really been upset with some of those sort of like, I'd say, especially like the teenage or like early twenties version of myself that's still in that psyche. And I'm like, dude, you're messing my stuff up now. And I'm, you know, all these years later, but now I've, I've become a little bit better about kind of meeting them where they're at and trying to bring some, some, something to them. And I, I think this is beautiful how you had also felt so aligned when, when Hoda was mentioning ISIS, because obviously I, I'm not a, someone, I've never worked with ISIS. I haven't dove deeply into her. But one thing that I found really striking about her is this sort of reassembling that she does. Um, for, for Osiris and how powerful I think that is to like bring the body back together. Um, because I was thinking about uh, something similar recently where um, Dionysus and Bacchus and Orpheus, they've all been in my field over the last month. And the Dionysus myth, as well as sort of some better versions of the Orpheus myth as well, um, they have this aspect where uh dionysus is is dismembered right he's taken apart and then maybe later someone later reassembles him and i was just always i was struck just thinking about like 
what is that telling us about something? And I felt like it was maybe saying something about sort of going down too far down the Dionysian kind of route can lead to disembodiment. I thought was like what the myth was was trying to say. And for some reason, this came back up to me when I thought about Isis because she's considered someone, at least in, in like in like I like how you mentioned it that combination of the West, where I think in the West, especially too, but other places where she has these elements of healing and magic. And I think about how powerful it is that her narrative has her bringing together the, bo- the parts of the body again. Ooh, Annie says, the phrase, it has to fall apart to be put together, was said to me this week. And that absolutely feels ex- very related. And so I just want to just kind of go back to Hoda or Annie about like if that if that's bringing up anything for you this sort of like this idea of bringing the body parts back together well yeah um thank y'all both for musing and sharing out loud I was really touched by what you shared Annie and I I I guess like on the surface level, the first thing that comes up for me as a reflection to what you all said is how, even in Isis's traditional myth, how her like healing and I think partnering with Nephethys, her sister, and I think Anubis <clears throat> to help reassemble um, Osiris, it always kind of, I won't say rubbed me the wrong way, but I guess for me, I'm like, even when I first read the story, I guess my first impression was like, why can't she reassemble herself? Like, why can't she use that? Why can't the same healing power that's being used to reassemble the psyche of man be used to reassemble the like reality and the psyche of herself? And then I think that instead of projecting it onto the myth, because there's absolutely nothing I can do about the myth except criticize it, right? (laughs) out loud is is I think to kind of re-embody that prowess like in my own practice where I think what Annie spoke to like this idea of um this collection of selves and this myriad of selves coming together to uh yeah I would say like I guess for me like to yeah to kind of re reconfigure or to recounsel like the present self or the self that I'm embodying at, at any given moment, which can kind of seem chaotic, but I guess to the example of, of healing across time spectrums that has been really alive for me. And in the sense of working with childhood aspects of myself, teen aspects of myself, but also like the self that I was yesterday, which might be like, you know, which might be some of that ISIS medicine, like really like integrating into my system. But yeah, I guess that that's, I don't want to like polarize the conversation to be like, well, why can't she just use the healing on herself, but kind of bring it to a more like anchored nuance um, perspective that I think regards the internal work that it takes to even feel called or to feel qualified to, you know, maybe even offer one's healing to another person. Um, Yeah. Mm. I think first of all, I, I will say like you should never feel bad about pushing back on myths. I feel like that has been something that 
has been consistent in this space. I feel like several times we've sort of pushed back on it or maybe pushback is not the right. I think it's just, you know, been honest about some of these myths and how there are opportunities for us to, I think, co-create new ones. These things are still in flux. These stories are still happening in a way, at least in my opinion. So, yeah, I, I just wanted to say that real quick. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I, I like that honesty that, yeah, you're why, why couldn't? And I don't I don't know why. Yeah, that is a good question. That is a very good question. I mean, I was thinking this is sort of a little bit unrelated, but I'll just say like. I guess from like the misogyny standpoint, um, which might be at play here because so often men have been involved in writing things in history, um, is that I have wondered often like, cause that like, I, I think I told y'all like Psyche and Cupid was really in my field the last couple of weeks. And so like this week, Venus was really coming through hard for me. And I was just thinking about like, about her in this in this particular version of Psyche and Cupid, that Venus that shows up in that story is pretty pretty ruthless. Um, and there's some real, you know, pretty obvious misogyny that's written into that myth. And so I was just like, man, how how do we kind of help suss out? And I was just thinking about how many layers there are to it where there's like there's these myths, but then there's also all these other symbolic archetypal connection points. And um, and just sort of sitting with, with all these different layers that are kind of overlapping, but they have parts that are like not overlapping. I'm trying to think of an image that I can, that it's almost like letters written on top of themselves. Um, whereas some of the letters, you know, when you write, like if you were to take your name and write all the letters in one space on top of each other, some of the letters and some of the lines would be on top of each other. And some really go outside of it. And that kind of image came up for me, thinking about some of these archetypes and deities and functions, especially with deities where I kept coming back to this idea of like, in a lot of traditions, especially when you get to like the, the kind of earliest gods, the, um, the sort of, there's their cosmic functions or their abstractions even that are, as the word goes, personified or anthropomorphized, whatever word. And and then at some point, a personality develops. And I was just really sitting with the interesting, that piece of like, when a function suddenly has a personality and what that might say about some of these gods. And I don't know why this is coming up for me right now. And I apologize. It feels kind of very perpendicular to what was being discussed. But I'm just going to take a beat and see if for some reason that might have opened something up for someone in some way or if something came something new came up for someone thinking back about Isis and this experience that you were describing Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, Adam. Um, I think what comes up for me is, yeah, how a lot of like um, practice or pre-Christian religious like rituals were kind of, or let's say like indigenous like worship practices um, 
where people of all like lands and backgrounds were like worshiping the lands and like worshiping, you know, the nature that was surrounded them. Um, I was thinking about how a lot of those practices seem to be, I can't speak for all of them, but a lot of those lineages seem to sort of work with the deity as an abstraction and mm -hmm. like how I think as time like goes on, which is one thing that was really prevalent in Dr. Angela Puka's like uh, video was how like Isis, it's not like Isis came from where she was in Egypt and then like came to the West, like physically, it's like the abstraction of Isis and the abstraction that is that like liminal process of self recapitulating, um, making oneself whole again, I guess you can say that that abstraction made it to the West. So like, I guess, yeah, like at, at face value, what you're saying does make a lot of sense. And then even on a deeper level, it checks out. Um, it, like according to like what I watched from the video and also just in my own research and realizing that a lot of like what painted religious practice for a long time or devotional practices was working with these abstractions and then allowing like persona to be filled in through one's like personal lens, which is something that we do a lot in the room where we just talk about deities like fragrant, like flagrantly where we're like, oh my God, like this, like one of my friends and I were talking about it recently where she asked me, she's like, do you ever have beef with a God? And I was like, girl, let me tell, do I? Like <laughs> I have beef with gods and goddesses all the time. But I think it also can easily mirror like the, um, the internal battle too that I'm on my own path where it's not like again I'm not fighting this idea or this concept I'm um, kind of taking myself to task to understand myself like with a with a more clearer lens you know so mm -hmm. it, it's something that totally is welcomed here in the room like I should probably ask a question one day and be like who do you have beef with today as a god or goddess <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I mean, I, I, I don't know, for a little while, some of my inner practice involved me like really trying to differentiate them. Like, okay, there's the sort of deity that's, that, that exists beyond. And then there's sort of my projected version of this deity that says something about me and my relationship with either that deity or that concept or that sort of dimension of life. And sometimes that would help me when I was really like worried I wasn't being reverent enough or anything, but I like how you said like with, with more exposure, you're like, yeah, I got beef with some gods and goddesses. Yeah. That's hilarious. Um, I love this term self-inspection. Yes. Yeah. And Annie, like, I'm curious, like, you know, thinking of this, like this experience, I don't want to lose sight of it. I'm, I think it's such a helpful, I just love this. Like, thinking about some of the message like it's it's a, to me what i love about the way you described it and how it's kind of aligns with some of the experiences i've had where these things they come to the surface but there's all this activity below the conscious level that's happening at the subconscious level where like things are working right there's negotiations or there's sort of new knowledge new things coming into fold in different aspects of ourselves, and then suddenly there's this ripening i think uh Nobu used the phrase a couple weeks back with this ripening karma. And that just keeps coming up for me. Like that's such a beautiful way to, to express this. And I know it's hard because this is down underneath the, uh, underneath the iceberg 
Annie, but I'm wondering if like you can recall any like particular, and the reason why I keep saying image is because I'm, is like that archetypal piece, right? Where like, I, I, I do believe that we can get somewhere with some real work with just like the mental, but I feel like the archetypal thing is something like with our dreams, right? Like instead of just like thinking thoughts, we're doing things and our body is actually moving in space and doing things. And through that process, we are getting messages or we are doing healing or whatever's happening. Right. And, and I feel like there's something important about that with dreams that like, there's actually a doing. And so I'm curious, like if you were to take a guess or if you were to ask yourself and go in, like, what were your, what was your subconscious up to? Like, what were some of those, the, the vibe there when, you felt like maybe some of this was clicking if there were images or um yeah archetypes that were coming up for you as you were allowing yourself to sort of release this 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 pain from earlier in childhood this thought form that developed and i'm sorry personal yeah go ahead andy oh sorry no it's not personal quit apologizing um i wouldn't be here if i didn't feel comfortable i'm just you know it's really weird that you ask that because like probably a couple of days ago, I had this really strange dream. And a lot of times I will dream things before it like manifests in the physical, whether it's emotional or like a real event or a conversation or whatever. And in this case, (laughs) I had this dream that I was walking across a field and there were like a hundred baby bird robin nests on the ground filled Mm. with baby robin eggs and i was trying to like dodge the eggs so i wouldn't like hurt the birds you know and it was like this really intense dream and then i woke up and i was like that's really weird and so i googled it because what else would one do after such a dream but to try to figure out what it meant and from what I remember, and I could be misspeaking, so if it's, you know, it, what I took from it, let me say it like this. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, what I took from it was that I was in a time of, one, coming into, like, good fortune and luck and abundance, but only if I was able to release um, portions of me that I had been carrying from a version of me that no longer exists. And because I was doing this delicate dance around these nests, um, it was almost like a this sense of avoidance or resistance to facing or admitting or admitting seems like something I've done wrong. So I don't know if that's the right word, but like confronting, um, affirming, acknowledging, any of those words would probably be a better choice. Those those portions of me that I had kind of been carrying as if it was, I don't know, I guess I'm like having this image of I ha- like everyone's wearing a backpack, right? And there's like things you throw in the backpack that you believe are supplies that you'll need along your journey. But if you're not going through your backpack, like you may have things in there that are not suited for the environment in which you have traveled to. So Mm. like, let's say you came from the desert. So you have like a bunch of water and a bikini, but you've traveled to 
a place where it snows. Well, the bikini is not really going to serve you anymore. So at some point you have to put the bikini down and grab a coat. And so it's kind of like that feeling of, oh, wait, we've been having, we've had all of these things we're carrying and these are great tools, but they're not tools for where I am. Mm. Thank you. Um, I'm curious, what do you, did you do Robins have, did it mean anything specific to you? The Robins eggs? Or just Robins in general, like for you, like, oh, you know, that's something. That- I, sort of, but not really. I mean, no, I can make it stretch to mean something for me, but birds in general mean something for me because mm-hmm. my grandmother, okay, this is like kind of a long story, but I'll try to like make it not that's so long. Fair. Um, my grandmother was, first of all, this is really weird. Okay. My grandmother used to read us Greek mythology growing up. That was like our entertainment. When she would keep us, she would read us all of the Greek mythology stories. And we used to play <laughs> as like eight-year-olds. We would play like Medusa in the backyard. It was like, it's like this family joke we have because that was like what we would play that she was going to get us. Anyway, so my <laughs> grandmother, who is, I'm seeing all of the synchronicities as I say it, um, heavily into Greek mythology. She used to have these two little porcelain bluebirds statues that we would play with at her house. They're very small and they're very breakable and we'd always get in trouble, but I always wanted to play with them. When I started having my like very first spiritual awakening, one of my main spiritual symbols was two bluebirds and I couldn't figure out why those, but I eventually made the connection to those two bluebirds and they have since followed me throughout my spiritual journey and I will save you the time on in all of the ways but if I were to some, like tie back a bird to me um then yes bluebirds are very much a part of my spiritual experience as a human well first of all that is beautiful and what an amazing experience to have. I always, I think it came up recently too, like grandmothers, like there's just something special about grandmothers, my goodness. But how fascinating that Bluebirds has this beautiful resonance with you for like a spiritual awakening. And Robin's eggs are famously blue. There's these eggs that can, there's blue eggs that contain potentially a bird. Very interesting. Wow, that's really beautiful. Yeah, and I'm like, sometimes I feel like with archetypes too, like, and Annie, I'm just guessing by your voice, you're, you're American. So like, there's these phrases that I sometimes wonder, like, if our sub, how our subconscious does it, because like, there's, there's like the whole concept of walking on eggshells, right? Like an archetype of walking on eggshells. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm an American too, so like, and that was on my field too, that I was like, yeah, there's some sort of archetypes with America that could be really fun to play with in a special container one time, I think, to be like, what's wrong with America? That could be a whole other topic. But anyway, like, you know, with American archetypal language, there's sort of like walking on eggshells, right? And then there's don't put all your eggs in one basket. And like, I just, for some reason, those were like, those archetypal things were coming up when it was like, there's this like very tiptoeing around set of eggshells, literally eggs. Instead of eggs in lots of baskets, it's lots of nests. I'm just saying those out loud to see if anything stands out because I'm just, these are really interesting images and imagery. Hmm. Hmm. 
and I'm sorry to, to go, well, I'll stop apologizing, but on this dream, like, cause it's, it feels so potent. Do you recall any sense of tension? When I was listening to you, it sounded like there was some tension maybe around like walking around and being careful around them. Um, and then I also felt like you were describing some tension afterwards. It was like, but I feel like the tension you're describing was, was sort of maybe what you were feeling outside the dream. I'm curious if you, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm curious if you felt, remember feeling any tension in the dream. I think all of my tension was felt outside of the dream space. It was like, it was really, it was almost really lucid in the sense that like, I was aware that it was a dream as it was occurring, mm-hmm. or at least I don't want to say dream. Let me not say that because it feels more like a download than a dream. Uh, um, it okay. felt like, the, like, you know, when you are dreaming something and you're like, oh, this is important. Like you should remember it. Mm-hmm. And you have that like moment where you're like, oh, I know this is like not obviously real life, but like this is a, this is a significant thing. It was mm-hmm. kind of like that. But I remember in the dream just being like, oh, cool. We're going to go through these <laughs> this field of nests. It's going to be fine. And then as the, I don't know, it's almost like I was like a NPC in a video game. And like my awake-ish or lucid self was like controlling this character that was me in this event and like i was more nervous about trying to control the character of me mm-hmm. than the character of me was being nervous which is really deep if you think about it and you tie it back yeah. to what we're discussing you know as i'm saying it out loud it's like oh well like obviously that makes a lot of sense because we're talking about allowing you know parts of your old old past present future selves to surface and then trying to like control the environment in which they are surfacing and how they are affecting you in the now when that is silly because there is no way to control the past or the present mm. really, or the future. So it's just interesting that like my sense of tension relied on control and control is a coping mechanism to perfection. And the perfection is the portion of me that I'm releasing from self-competition you know what I'm saying? Like it's all mm-hmm. interwoven in that way. Yeah. No, that's a read right there. <laughs> I got nothing to say, but amen. Wow. And I mean, that is so true though, right? Like I think about that all the time, how like being an introspective person is so beautiful and going in is so beautiful, but there's a difference between like going in and like going in and trying to control everything. You know what I mean? Um, and I love how you, you could sense that there was something, you didn't say this, but like the way I'm feeling it was like, there's almost something lost when we're trying to take control. Whereas if you had just let that sort of the dream, you or the astral, you or whatever you want to describe it to just walk, she'd probably be fine. But that, that sense of tension comes in where it's like, Oh, I got to do this. I got to walk. And it's like, yo, she was walking already before you started thinking about how she got to walk. It feels very related to that self-competition piece that you described earlier. And certainly feels really related to stuff that's been in my field for a while. And in my own experiences of sort of, yeah, like this weird push and pull of like wanting to know all these different aspects of myself, bring healing and bring uh, harmony. But 
sort of when something comes up that is against the preference of the ego self or the, the self that sort of becomes aware of, of, a, of a thought or a pattern, um, how quick it, that part suddenly wants to like take control or like, what do I do in this situation? I got to do it, do something right here. I got to, you know, take the right step. Um, and how so much can get lost in that. But wow, I feel like you read that perfectly personally. Whew. Yes. That's really pretty. And like the egg thing to me, that feels like I, I, I understand why that website you went to said that feels auspicious, like feels like new life, especially if it's tied to spirituality already in your subconscious, a sort of bluebird with a spiritual journey and with um maturation even because like you said the bluebirds also have this resonance of well i kept being told not to touch them because i wasn't ready because i was too small to touch them but i really wanted to play with them so like to me that's really interesting that when you did have your spiritual awakening that the bluebirds came back because it's like this beautiful almost like archetypal way to be like yeah you ready you're, you're mature you can handle the bluebirds now at least that's what comes up for me. I don't know if that actually resonates with you, but it, that's what comes up for me. It's so wild that you say that because that was like at the time that it was happening, I thought I was going nuts, you know, because nobody else around me was very spiritual. I was like the first person I knew. I mean, I know I'm not the first person ever to have a spiritual awakening, um, but I was like the first person in my in my circle because, you know, I'm in a Bible Belt-ish area. And so there is a lot of um, very devout Christianity and that it is not necessarily, especially when it was happening to me, it was not necessarily something that was like acceptable. It wasn't like talked about. There weren't Instagram reels talking mm -hmm. about spirituality. You know, it wasn't like there wasn't a way to find your people. And so I just thought I was insane. And <laughs> I'm like, well, what do you mean the bluebirds are talking to me like this is you're being crazy, but it's interesting that you say that because I guess I was, I had to have been ready for them to show up in the way that they have, because it, you know, it's one day I'll like record a video or something and you guys can watch it and tell me what you think. But it, that, that it was like when it all clicked and I knew like, Oh, my grandmother is one of my guides. This is, she's mm. the one ushering me mm. into this new version of me as like a pioneer in this world mm. that I'm not sure of, you know, and to have that be such a comforting, like childhood related message is like, how do you, like, how could I doubt that? Yes. Yes. And I think that's, I think that's what, what, um, what that quote that I, I need to just find the darn thing real quick. Let me just read it out loud. I'm so sorry, oh, but I I'm so glad you're saying this. Oh my goodness. And I love like also like it's so honest. Like, dude, am I going crazy here? But the way that it showed up, did it in such a way where like you really could hold on to it. You could you could really hold on to it. And I think that is something so beautiful. Oh, I can't find this thing. You know. But I think in the in the quote, like, is really speaking about the sort of archetypal experiences, and you're using it in the frame of grace, 
where he was like, it sort of comes. And he, and this is Carl Jung is the quote. So instead of saying God, he's talking about the unconscious. Like it's grace coming from the unconscious, right? Because that's the language that he's comfortable with, or at least at that time when he was doing this quote. And he calls it an archetypal experience, which to me is really pointing to these blessings, these awakenings, these downloads, these things that happen, these initiations, like Hoda saying in the chat, self-initiation. Um, and thank you. I should have been updating with the chat, but Hoda was saying it aligns with how she understands self-initiations as well. Um, is that there's this archetypal experience where, yeah, to someone else, they might be like, what are you talking about, Bluebirds? Like, how does that prove anything? But like, because of your background, because of who you are, because of how what your subconscious is, that bluebird experience made it so that you could really believe in it. You could, you could, it could be true. You could feel it as truth because it's like, no, I know what these things mean, and you can feel it. Like it really is like this doorway. It's this bridge. At least that's what I what I'm feeling right now. That um, that it was a bridge for you. Where you could say, ah, and you can really start to make more sense of what we were experiencing and feel that tangible connection with your grandmother. Wow. Yeah, Hoda says, yes, it's already in your kosh, the etheric field. And it's pretty fun that it was in the field, too, in the stream, too. I couldn't help but think of that, especially if, you're, if your grandmother was always doing Greek mythology, like I just thought of the Elysian fields, right, in the... Um, in the underworld. Oh no, that's that's uh yeah. It's meant to be. Yes. Yes. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. I mean this really and that's what's so great about these experiences, like but I think that's what makes them so what makes spirituality so interesting and why community is so powerful. For, for this, because if you know, you know. It's really that. <laughs> if you don't know, then it's like, well, hopefully you can listen and appreciate it and have some sense of curiosity and openness. Um, but there's just this knowing that can come when you've had these experiences and you can see like, wow, what a gift that this thing came to me and made itself known. Oh, that's so great. And it feels lighter. Oof. That release. I can, I'm getting like body chills thinking about the release and the water too. Like, like the release of water with the tears. Like, I'm just thinking about that too. Like, just how powerful crying is physically, spiritually, emotionally, but also archetypally. Releasing the waters. So, the waters have to flow, they always go down to the lowest point. And so when we're crying, it's like, let them go down to the lowest point, back to the earth, instead of us having to hold on to them, and they become water weight <laughs> in our body and in our subtle body, right? Mm. And he says, yes, we are water, so we must release portions of ourselves, literally. Yes. And let it flow back to the earth. Let it flow right on back. You can take it. You can find it useful. That's the thing. The great economy of the underworld. <laughs> they know how to use everything. That's one thing that's also like been in my field. I'm sorry to bring this up all the time. This, this is definitely a tangent. But like, I just think about how in spirituality, 
especially because I think maybe this is coming up because you mentioned the Christianity piece. And I didn't grow up in a evangelical Christian background. I grew up in a Catholic town. Um, and then I was an atheist. And then I came back to Christianity in my late 20s, or my early 30s, I should say. Um, and when I did, I was more kind of exposed to more, I'd say, the Protestant evangelical kind of style, um, which was really helpful to me at that time. But I also had to shed that again uh, a couple of years ago in a continuing spiritual journey. But one thing that I, I love about some of the Eastern and some of the even the ancient Western, like the polytheistic, like talking about like Hellenistic and others, is the, the importance of the underworld. Whereas I feel like in Christianity, it becomes bottled down to like everything good's heaven, everything bad is hell. And it's like, but there's, there's, there's some really important work happening in the underworld. Like, why are we discounting a, a whole other part of reality? Um, it's an important piece uh, of the whole. And I don't know. I just felt like, yes. And he said, I was raised in a way where the underworld hell was a threat or punishment. Exactly. And Hoda says, yeah, that strong duality is bollocks. It really is. It really is. And I think some of these ancient religions and Eastern as well, like they really help especially those of us that kind of went into that Christian modality or other Abrahamic modalities even, but especially Christianity, I feel like maybe that's the one I know the most about. Like we've got some healing to do on, the, on, on our um, understanding of, of concepts of the underworld and what's below. Yes. Hoda says, I even know people who are afraid of fire because of the stories they grew up hearing around hellfire, which is wild. And it is really sad. It is quite sad. It's funny too because, like, yeah, I, that was. I was never. Uh, I don't think I ever. Unfortunately, I've always loved fire too much, probably. Um, but I remember when I was really deep into, like, I would say when I say evangelical in my context, I mean more like this phrase. This phrase where I was taking things from scripture very literally, as opposed to archetypally. Because that was sort of the strain of thought. Yes. And he's a fellow Aries. That's what's up. Yes. I love fire. But I love, but fire is also purifying. Like, it's so funny because like, yeah, the way that scripture talks about like the lake of fire, it's like this horrible thing that, that someone gets thrown, that you get thrown into. But the more I go in my spiritual practice, the more I can see like, oh yeah, taking a dip in the lake of fire might be good for the soul. Refining. You know? So, like, I don't see it as a bad thing necessarily, this lake of fire in the archetypal sense. Um, I don't want, you know, shielding for anyone that that imagery might be a lot for. But um, anyway, like I said, that was a tangent thinking about the tears going back to Earth. Let me bring it back down. <laughs> Get myself grounded. Now, that fire is cleansing to you as well. Yeah, I feel that too. And it is interesting, though, that, like, that's the thing. That when you get into these dualistic kind of mindsets, you you lose like it's massive. You lose fifty percent, right? If it's a polarity or a duality, you might risk losing losing as much as fifty percent of reality. That's, that's a huge price tag for duality. Damn, damn. Suddenly we're discussing all the elements. Yes, yes. 
Um, oh, and then uh, this uh, that's great conversation about always lighting something and using fire in your inner practices or before sessions. You had to clear the space, right? To, to purify with it, bring that fire element. And I mean, I love the old ancient Vedic stuff where these guys were really fire priests. You know, almost all these rituals were around fire. Um, I think recently I was talking about also Hestia and Vesta and how in the Roman and Greek, you know, the fire was also a really prominent piece of their practice. And yeah, the elements, the elements are just, to me, like, I never get tired of talking about the elements. I think the elements are so, like, they never stop being interesting to me, ever. Um, and I love, I love, yeah, I see this, this, and he says, elements in the body as a form of release, water is tears, fire is movement to me, air is breath. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love fire as movement. Yeah. Yeah, because there's heat when you're moving around. It's like that's crazy. I got a fire lit under me, right? Got that fire in your belly, that solar plexus <laughs> in archetypal uh, idiot, idiomatic form. Mm. Yes. I'm just like sitting with this and please feel free to come off of mute if anyone's got anything that's coming up for them. I'm just at this point, I feel like I'm just trying to integrate all this great stuff that's being shared. And Annie, I want to thank you once again for sharing this amazing experience. These experiences are so beautiful to share, I feel like. I also think it's wonderfully timed that you happen to come into this space too, because I find it really can be helpful to articulate an experience while it's still really fresh to help sort of along with the integration process. You didn't hijack anything, no. I actually was telling, oh, I don't know why, but this week I didn't have anything really concrete that was coming to me. Maybe this is why. Um, Lexus, I think the broom and my practice helped me to develop a healthy relationship with fire. Because growing up, I remember having fear around fire because of religious dogma. That's beautiful. It's really, I'm glad we're like voicing this. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think about that all the time with like resonances. Because the more I do this work around archetypes and stuff, and the, the problem is like, not of the problem, but I, um, when I go in, I like to, I like, I do like to give, I, I probably give too much life to all the thoughts that pop up. It's like the opposite of what they say, right? Like, when a thought goes up, just let it float on by. And like sometimes if I'm in the mood, that's that's how it'll go down. But oftentimes I'm like, hmm, what 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 you got going on in there? Tell me more. Sometimes I'll clown them when they like someone will say something nasty. I'm like, oh, you want to say it again? And then they got no juice, right? Um, so I'm like, okay, that's one I can ignore. But some of the the one that repeat, I'm like, all right, I'm I, I'll follow them. Right? I'm like, What's going on? Um, the fuck goes up. I'm like, go. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure what part that was. Oh, when a thought comes up. Oh, <laughs> this is making me think of something else too. Oh man! But this is what I think. Of my point was was that like the way that thoughts work. It, no, you didn't derail me. It's all good. The fuck do be coming up though. They do. They do. And actually, that has been coming up for me 
<laughs> this is funny. I'm sorry, I can't. But the main point I think I was trying to make was like because of resonances, we that's how that's how these thoughts explode into other things. That's why how like you know conversations like how do we get here? It's like because this and that connected, and then that connected with this. You didn't break me. I'm just all over the place, but that's all right. That's all right because it it's all related. It's all related to how with a dualistic system too, the resonances are so much sharper that like seemingly innocuous thoughts or forms or things that might show up in your subconscious suddenly take on this really dangerous profile because of these crazy connections that you have. My parakeets also want to get in on this. They got some stuff to say. So hopefully anyone that speaks bird, hopefully what they're saying might be better. Um, that's why I kind of make fun of resonance as a final girl concept. That's funny. Yeah, because resonance is not always good. I mean, it's good, but like, it's not always maybe helpful or healthy. Kind of like Annie was saying, like you, you know, if you have all you got in your bag is a bikini and you're in the and you're in the, the tundra, that's not great. Well, things might be resonating, but if those aren't the, the things you want resonating in that moment for that experience, then you're in trouble, right? And so I feel like that happens to me all the time, like. The things that come up and resonate might be a bunch of triggers, might be a or might be a bunch of bullshit that I haven't healed yet, and I'm like, oh no. And I've noticed that too in my own inner work, where things will come up, and especially when I'm trying to like really do some more conceptual work, I guess, and I have to do some cleaning and cutting because some of these concepts, some of the things that are coming up for me, they can't really take shape because they're connected to something else, and I have to cut them off. I have to cut off some connections in order to, to kind of shake my psychic landscape, uh, but not in a forceful way, if, if I can. But anyway, this is all just, uh, <laughs> you're right, you did maybe break me a little bit because I'm just so excited. So I'm going to try to regulate myself here and uh, come back down. But uh, yeah, yeah, like getting sick. Oh, hold on, maybe you if you're feeling up to the same more, but you're right, like that can often be the resonance too that comes up is those physical resonances. Especially with those particular parts of our body where some of these particular concepts might dwell <laughs> or have for some reason extra uh, attachment to. Mm -hmm. mm. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. I was like, I guess I was kind of like being a little reductive reductionist when I was saying that but I'm like wait no that actually in the context especially that um Annie gave and that you're bringing back up this idea of like going to the to a frozen tundra knowing that you have clothes knowing that you have like some semblance of supplies but like having the wrong supplies for the context at large and how like you know there's like internal resonance right where like things cause your nervous system to ripple that can happen on a micro level, like getting dysregulated or getting, you know, and I think these things happen every day in passing, but then there is like um, resonance for circumstances that, where, where the circumstance or the resonance at hand doesn't really, again, fit the context at hand. And so I'm just kind of thinking about that, those examples and how they can ripple out. And maybe you're not like looking to get sick, I wouldn't say, some people might say in metaphysical worlds, like you manifested getting sick because you brought a bikini to a tundra. And it's like, maybe not like once that wasn't like the person's intention, but also, yeah, just this idea of um, 
resonance or the ripple um, through time space um, meeting with a circumstance or a context in our own field, in our own awareness, and how like there's, I mean, there's like tons of energy work that you can do to sort of, yeah, string theory. That's kind of what I was thinking about too, Annie, is like how string theory is coming up for me um, and how like, yeah, like depending on dialing into different circumstances, I think would call for a different set of uh, resonance. And also I feel like saying, because I am an energy worker, I'm like, and you can also like disable a little bit of the resonance without like totally numbing yourself out, of course. Um, so I hope that makes sense. <laughs> I think I kind of got excited too and dysregulated. So it's fine though. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. I think that was probably just uh, my influence on this container. <laughs> um, but there are parts of me too that like, you know, there's there's spaces where it might be safe to be a little dysregulated and just be excited about sharing things that bring a level of awe and interest and passion. Um, and that's okay too, I think sometimes. Um, but yeah, I, um, I'm just really tickled by this whole conversation though, about like the, these, the ripples, the string theory. I love that. I love also like, I use that kind of like Indra's net a lot where it's like, well, everything's connected. So if you pull one thing, like you might have some really weird effects in how it relates to the other pieces. Um, and for some reason, with the whole thing with the fuck, like they came up earlier, that came up, to, what came up for me is literally last night, I was just thinking about, you know, how I'm an American, and the words that I use, how they show up in the psychic landscape for me, and how as a culture that shows up in our collective psyche. And I just think about the, the word fuck, like how much we use it in America. And how, especially where I came from, I'm from Jersey, right? So that word is like, it's like every other word when I was, when I was a certain age, from like 15 to like 24, it was, it was such a predominant word in my vocabulary, in my lexicon, it's popping out of my mouth left and right. And then I'm like looking back in my 20s and it's like, man, I had a whole lot of sacral problems in my 20s and 30s. These don't feel like unrelated things to me, do they? And isn't that interesting that like, this is a language at a collective level and America does seem to have some significant sacral issues at a collective level. Well, maybe we're throwing around the word fuck too much, or maybe we're throwing around the word love too much. Oh, I love this. I love that. Okay. But that's what we're using love in a very possessive way because in English love is, is like what in other languages might be 14 different words is all just love. And I just think about like these words, Man, they really got a lot of juice to them. And if we're not careful, what else are we bringing into our field with these words? Anyway, same with shit. We use shit all the time. Like, I feel like that probably says something about our root, our root issues. I think that says something about even just some of the scatological to be gross about it for a second. But like, even in the dream world. Um, so I had this one coaching class where she was talking about recurring things in dreams. And she said one of the most recurring dreams that people have in all those classes is, uh, this is gross, I'm so sorry, trigger warning, is a toilet filled with poop that can't be flushed. She said that's one of the most recurring archetypal images in the dream landscape. And I'm like, that makes so much sense. A, because 
at an archetypal level, that that kind of connects with a lot of things about how we need to release and get rid of things and let things go, right? And and hygiene and self hygiene and all those archetypes. But I also think of like from an American standpoint, where we use the word shit every other day, like, it's gonna like we're gonna be obsessed with it. We're gonna have weird digestion issues. We can't stop anyway. I'm gonna look at the chat because I I went on a little word tangent, but. Yes, please, everyone, uh, anyone want to come off mute and uh, add to that? Yes, how does I'm thinking of how words can be spelled? Exactly, exactly. Mm. The first manifestation tool. We're constantly telling on ourselves. Yes, yes, we are. I have something to add. Please. It. It kind of reminds me of the idea of confirmation bias, like what you're mm -hmm. expecting to see or hoping to see you will continue to see, but like in this, in the sense of like speaking. So what you're speaking into existence just by speaking, you are creating more of that in your reality with or without knowing that that's what you're doing in the first place. Mm. It reminds me of confirmation bias, like, because, well, and I can only relate it to myself, right? Because that's what we do. But for me, I used to be a verbal processor. So I would tell people things in order to process the emotion. And so I would like, if, and this is like when I was a teenager, um, but I would have an event or something happen to me. I would be unable to self-regulate, self-validate. I would have to call someone and tell them the story for them to self or well validate me mm. so that I could feel like the satisfaction of self-validation. And then I, the conversation would end and I'd be like, okay, I'm good. But then that self-doubt tying it all the way back to self-competition, mm. the self-doubt self, the self-narrative would creep in and plant all the little seeds. And then suddenly I'm back to being dysregulated and I would go back out to find another person to then again speak the story through in order to process. But what I was doing in those moments was just, man, like not manifesting, but just creating suffering. I was allowing myself to continually suffer as mm. opposed to truly facing and handling and processing and releasing myself. Yes. It's it's so interesting that like I feel like we were talking a little bit about myth at the top and this feels so related, right? Like this is like to me it's point it's really speaking to that that tendency of all of us to do our own myth making and how some of us took that to other levels, right? Of really bringing in our network, our friends to help us create these myths around what we're experiencing. Wow. I'm so jazzed right now. What's that? I said, I'm so jazzed right now. Like, <laughs> I'm like metaphorically in, on fire about it. But yeah, like I feel like that's what we do at, is we go and try to create the, we take these personal projections of what we believe our narrative to be. And then we take them externally instead of internally. And we move them into the vocal space and mm -hmm. place them out for someone to say yes or no to. And we're allowing, okay, I'm about to start preaching, so I'm going to pre-apologize. 
what we're doing is allowing these people who are not in our same lived experience to then dictate how we're going to experience our own experience moving forward because they confirmed or denied what we believe to be true for our own reality. So we allow, we're, we're allowing these individuals to create and construct our own reality instead of having and holding the power to do so ourselves. Mm. Mm. Yes, indeed. And for some reason, the way you described that, which was so beautifully said and like so true to my own experiences. I think of that phrase, like they say, like nature abhors a vacuum, right? Or sometimes I've heard power abhors a vacuum too. I feel like mind more than anything abhors a vacuum <laughs> where we have this experience. Our mind's not sure what to make of it. And it's so desperate to create a story around it so that heaven forbid the mysterious elements of what went down and we can be alleviated. We can be relieved of our mystery. We're relieved of not knowing. And we can work with our team of writers uh, to come up with a storyline that puts our hero in the right place. It's an amazing thing that mine does. The Cosmic Writer's Room. Yeah. Yeah. That. To me, that all stems back to control, because if you can know the story, you can guess the ending. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yes. And uh, I think a lot of us are obsessed with endings, right? How does it turn out? Just need to know. Oh, wow. You are so right about that. Mm-mm-mm. You can't end on a cliffhanger. No. You know, like even right. in fiction, that's like the no, ultimate. You really can't. Experience is a cliffhanger because then your mind is left to, to wonder. Yes. And the mind, the mind likes completion. The mind it, likes closure. It likes an end point. It does. And isn't it funny? Like this is so, this might be a little bit unrelated, but just because you mentioned the cliffhanger and this, like, isn't it funny though, how, like you said, the mind doesn't like the completion, but when we watch our favorite shows and we'd, we'd have, we can't wait to see what happens and we let our mind fill in the gaps, we start to get wed to it. And then when we watch the sequel or we watch the next episode, we're like, ah, we're disappointed because it doesn't track with what we projected mentally about. It's like, damn, we could have actually just enjoyed this art if we just let it be, but no. It I feel like it's that way too. If you even if you predict correctly, because it mm -hmm. takes like the shininess away, it takes away that like first experience. Mm. I think that Hoda says is saying in the chat fear of disappointment question mark. And to me, that tracks with me at least. I think it probably shows up differently for different people. But this pattern showing up for me, I think, is very much related to a fear of disappointment. Absolutely, I agree. I feel like it's like a the ultimate self-protection is to try to manage whatever is whatever narrative, whatever story, whatever ending, however you want to label it, trying to manage those expectations is 100% like a, a survival skill, a human survival skill. 
that's how we survived, yeah. right? Like you had to know when someone was going to attack you or if you had shelter or where the animals lived so that you could eat. So you had to predict constantly in order to survive because at that point, like our primal instinct was if we don't get fed, we die. If we aren't warm enough, we die. So now in this like modern world, we're predicting much different things that don't appear to be as like, as like Maslow's hierarchy of needs go important, quote unquote, but they still are very prevalent and important to us now. Yes. Yes. And like, it's, to, it's, it's, I'm feeling like the way you're describing this, this beautiful, like evolutionary component of this pattern is just making me think back to, I kind of hinted at it, but something that's been in my field a lot is like the birth of personality. I'm just going to leave that there to see if that pops for anyone, but like how once personality properly understood comes into the human consciousness, this survival goes just from instead of, before it was just sort of bodily survival. Now there's this sort of personality survival that's in the mix. And wow, is that a weird thing? <laughs> Talk about a weird resonance, right? Of like this beautiful thing that we have in the mind to help us survive. But now this weird connecting point where it's like, no, it's not just bodily survival through like hard, like through like dangers that might show up, but personality survival. Yes, Hardy says, yes, the lengths we're conditioned to go to to protect our concept of self is. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and it makes me kind of feel into how like that evolutionary reflex itself has probably like evolved as we've evolved and as consciousness evolves through time. Um, because I think some, sometimes I, I can see it in myself personally when I'm walking into the grocery store or the DMV and I can feel my reflex, my evolutionary reflex to like scry the room, see if it's safe, scry myself, see which parts of myself I'm identifying with, and then walk into that room and then like see those expectations like literally dissolve because what I expect and what actually happens, um, I'm kind of like seeing the, the two screen effect from like 500 days of summer where it's like expectation and reality. And mm -hmm. I think constantly uh, or like when we're conditioned or we have been conditioned to project that distillation process externally and like i feel now like more evolutionary at least for myself i'm like scrying my internal temperature more than anything because mm. i mean nine i mean eight times out of ten knock on wood my environment is safe and i'm choosing safe environments but you know there's circumstances where people can't manage that of course which is a whole nother topic um but i also feel like yeah like there's a part of that evolutionary reflex that i think is is evolving and I think that pers that personality reflex is something that's probably occurred more recently in human yeah. history and like human evolution and and now we're I mean I don't know I could be projection projecting but I totally believe that we're in the age of Aquarius and that mm -hmm. that we're like <laughs> we're at a place where you know there is maybe like an uptick of um our how many different evolutionary reflexes we can hold in one body might be par for the like the challenge right now i don't know but that that's that's kind of like what comes up for me 
um, instantly, yeah, as y'all are talking about this. Oof. I mean, that feels really aligned for me, too. That Can feels- I ask something that might be controversial? Oh, definitely. <laughs> Do you believe that personality is a privilege? Ooh, that is spicy. I like that question. I'm going to sit with that for a second and see if anyone else wants to, to kick us off. Wow. That is a great question, Annie. I wonder if you want to write that down to ask other people in the room later, because I, I can imagine a couple of other people who would enjoy that question. Um, but I guess for me, as I reflect on it, on my first reflex is yes. And when I, I zoom out of that reflex, I realize that know that it might be like indicative of you know consciousness expanding past a certain threshold so for me it's like yes no and um Mm. if answers anything at all Uh, yeah i'm kind of getting an interesting something similar where i feel like at a certain way it is for me i feel like shaping a personality or like cultivating a personality or coming at it from that lens of like this is something I'm working on, that is a privilege. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's a personality that can develop in a sort of innocent way where it just arises, where you might say, oh, there's a personality here, but it's really just a function of that person's role that they play in the world and the way they move in the world. And you call it a personality, but they're not really shaping it consciously necessarily i think that whole conscious shaping of personality to me feels like a privilege mm-hmm. my like first thought is about the dichotomy of nature versus nurture i think there's a portion of personality that is nature based mm-hmm. and there's a portion of personality that is nurture based and like you're saying in order in order to be able to nurture the personality i believe that that is a privilege in a sense because it means that you have the emotional mental, spiritual, physical capabilities to do so, whereas others may not be in a place that they could. And mm-hmm. their personality is based off of the sheer nature of survival. Yes. Mm. But the personality thing is really interesting where it's like, where do we think this thing really... Like, I like how you're saying, like, the nature versus nurture. I think. The part that messes me up a little bit, well, not messing me up, but I found juicy in this moment. And I know we're kind of coming up on time, so sorry to add more juiciness to this. <laughs> I was thinking about this recently as the privilege of self-differentiation. Yeah, I think that's, that is really important, that self-differentiation. But I also, like, when I was thinking about, like, the gods as, like, certain gods, like, okay, I thought about, like, Indra in the Vedic, or, like, maybe even Zeus in the Greek. Because they both have some similarities where before you get Zeus and some of the Titans, a lot of the gods are like more like big picture abstractions, right? You've got knights, you got Nicks and, you know, all these things. Um, and then you get these individuals who are striving, willpower. They have wants and needs and they're, they're trying to take control, right? And you get the Zeus and Indra type figure. To me, it feels something related to this birth of a personality where I feel like and I think there's something interesting about that evolution from like a deity as a function or like a cosmic function, or sometimes people say like a force of nature versus a set of preferences. 
And so I think with the personality thing, I'm thinking about that too. Even from like the nature versus nurture, you have like certain, a lot of how we think of personality, I think comes down to like preferences. This person has these preferences. They like this versus that, or they like that, you know, right? And so a lot of our personality seems to form around our preferences, but I find it much more interesting to see personalities that have developed based on the roles or the functions that they're playing in their community or in their family or in their, the land. Yeah, because I feel like some of the way that that the latter example that you gave, the way that personality arises in those environments tends to be more organic and tends to be more, like you said, it's something that people don't consciously cultivate where like, I'm just thinking about people who grew grow up in like more rural or more like pastoral societies, like they're kind of their sense of self is defined by the role that they play within their ecosystem. And then at some point in their lives, they do get the privilege of self-deferentiation by um, either going to school, moving abroad, marrying into a particular family. And that privilege, um, different cultures, you know, in different lands have um, different ways of measuring and assuming and sometimes dictating who that privilege goes to. And so, of course, I, f I feel like there are distortions there as well. But I also, yeah, I agree. I think that there is something organic about um, the process that you named where persona gets cultivated in environments where the goal isn't to have this like perfectly cultivated personality that's like perfect at everything, but the mm. goal is to cultivate the person within the centralized role that they play for the, with, throughout the whole. Mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. And Annie, do you want to say more about what you said about the privilege of escape? I guess what came to mind when I was listening and like, you know, imagining that scenario as like a lived experience was like, what about the people who are in like an urban impoverished area who don't have the option to do anything to escape their ecosystem or the role that they play you know because i think there's some there's a lot of earthly things that go into um that play into the part of like okay you know just to say like a different experience would be like yes maybe you're in a, like you're the experience that you're describing where you're in a rural area and it's the certain personality role etc cetera, etc cetera, and you're able to step back from that role because you maybe you aren't relying on like the financial assist from those people or maybe you're able to make a new way in the world because of earthly resources right mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. what if you are you know how is the lived experience different for someone who's unable to es escape their ecosystem because their earthly resources are not there and they're forced to be in that role moving forward like they have no other choice but to be branded as a liar a cheater a stealer because they, that is how they have to survive where in on the other side of the coin you could coin you could label them a survivor mm -hmm. wow that just uh that just took this to a whole other level too annie thinking about sort of in this this like the privilege like we're talking about the personality of privilege too Something about the way you described all of that also made me think about how certain people can 
are better able to reflect or deflect, I should say, or not take in what other people's labels of them and how they identify them as, whereas other people are not able to, right? Where it's their community, other people are are labeling them such, how that label can get stuck easier. So, Mm. mm. Like a self-fulfilling prophecy, but more of like a community projected prophecy. In a way, like how that really, it, it becomes so much more work to disentangle that. Yeah. And it's also just like the nature of like, you know, that it can go two ways, but because that other person is in a higher status or whatever you want to call it, or a more privileged position, they just have less of this to have, they have to deal with, right? They have less, so much less they have to disconnect from and really do their healing from. Mm. Yeah. That brings up like the idea of groupthink, you know, like how people can get together and, and all have share an opinion and then convert that opinion to fact simply because they all believe it mm-hmm. and then project it onto members of that community. And I think yeah. it's so much harder. It's so much harder to convince someone of a truth when they are the ones initiating the falsehood versus when you are the one initiating your truth and no one has a preconceived falsehood of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm. Yeah, and you mentioned that, Annie, because in the chat I wrote, I feel like this gets into the ethics and the nature around the hive mind mm-hmm. and how we can, like, do that with our consciousness and then, like, the more people who join in on it. I mean, there's there's communities of, like, chaos magicians everywhere on the internet. now, So I feel like... It's not, I mean, and then so many different organizations and then like a lot of the culture of the West is kind of oriented on building structures and infrastructure for hive minds to like perpetuate for better and for worse. I feel like it's fair to kind of like name that. But I also, yeah, I feel like that's kind of what you're speaking to as well. Like what what if the hive mind or the group think of a particular environment is not substantiated or isn't um, supported by like the individual or like the individual doesn't have a say in what goes on in the like the group think or like how the group think is perpetuated or even what the group think tends to uh, lean towards results wise. And I, I, I feel like that's, yeah, that, that can get not only tricky and sticky, but I think there are a lot of examples in society right now in current time around like what it looks like when those intentions don't line up and aren't, I guess you can say like updated and considered um, when it comes to like the larger populace, when they're not considered with those people in mind and in heart, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially like in thinking about like the American context, right? Like we're all products of our environment, local and national and broader. And like, in America, like this trend towards collective identities and our identities being tied up to collective identities, like the term in the most current time, right? They use the word like identity politics. And I'm trying to say this in an apolitical way, like just like almost like an anthropologist, like looking at America, like I think it does say something about the American psyche, this identity politics. I think it actually has a lot to do with the fact of 
just the national landscape of like basically being you know this resurgent roman republic while also still trying to do some sort of healing or maybe some bringing back of like an ancient greek idea of democracy and how these things are really built into the the collective psyche and i think it's really interesting on this question about personality too is like nowadays a lot of personality sometimes will also come down to like in america at least like what identities like what do you identify with what are these collective identities that you also identify with um and how those overlap with political uh, affiliations um it's just so messy it's really messy um and really has all these weird like we talked about archetypal resonances where you find yourself in some really weird places mentally because of maybe the set of preferences that you're expressing or the type of people and energies that you're cultivating uh, in this space. Yes, Andy says, also makes me think of social media and cultivating self-imagery for groups to affirm digitally. Digital self-imagery affirmation equals false sense of success. Mm-hmm. Hoda says, same, so much awareness that's garnered on social media is really guiding the collective at the moment, I feel. Yeah. Oof. For better or worse, that does feel totally accurate to me. I mean, it certainly feels like I call I jokingly call it Twitter brain when like I go in and certain thoughts will start to come up and I'll be like, oh, Twitter brain's on top of the mic right now. <laughs> when you start to think in 140 characters. <laughs> or just like phrases and i'm like that's not that's not how i sound that's how people on twitter sound like what the yeah. hell <laughs> oh well and lump i know we're kind of like you kind of jumped in I'm, I'm i'm curious if anything's standing out to you um thank you for joining us uh it's been a it's been an interesting one today and been really exciting and fruitful i feel like uh, talk a little bit about self-initiation too and everything. So anyway, I just want to check in with you, Lump, if anything's coming up. Hey, um, I'm so sorry. I have like, I got distracted by something and, and stopped paying attention. So I will pay attention and now um, I'm not oh. a happy moment. Oh, no. sorry about that. <laughs> oh, please. I mean, I think part of the reason why it's been wild is I've been getting distracted while I'm hosting the space with all these exciting ideas and things that are coming up. Yeah, Annie, we are squirrels today. Yeah, that's 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 the vibe I'm feeling. But I'm having fun. I'm having fun. And I've I think I've picked some pretty cool little nuts to squirrel away and chew on later and marinate on later. Uh so I'm appreciating all the the sort of sharing of the seeds to use the squirrel to stick with the squirrel metaphor. We all that that just says I got my nuts too. We all got our little nuts. Um I think maybe because uh, I do want to be mindful of time, and I do have to to jump off in a second here. Maybe that might be a good place to to wrap up. And it's okay. I know Lump, you're kind of just joining. Maybe you have some other metaphorical nuts squirreled away. But yeah, I'm curious if anyone wants to like share any takeaways or things like in the metaphorical nuts. You know, we're talking about like things you might be squirreling away for later that you might uh, bring up in your own inner practices or your meditative or contemplative practices or things that you think will just be sitting in your subconscious field um, after this conversation. I'm going to ask myself the same thing and kind of 
go quiet for a second and hold space for anyone that wants to share in the chat or hop off mute. I will say for me, uh, yeah, I think there's so much. So I, the one that's coming up, that's like coming up for words expression is this self-competition piece that, like I said, that was, this was the first time I'd heard that phrase, that idea. And I really thank you, Annie, for bringing that. And I thank you, Hoda, for inspiring some of that with field tuning, it sounds like. But um, yeah, I think I'm really going to be sitting with that. As well as, you know, the, the script writer uh, archetype, sort of the cosmic writer's room that, was, that came up and lumped. This was a, a sort of comment about this, this practice of mind or this pattern that many of us have fallen into of like something happens and we need to instantly build a myth around it. We need to build a narrative around it and using our friends to help us do that. Um, and so, yeah, that, that also is coming back up to me, like just looking and taking stock at those ways in which I've maybe written myself into a corner to stick with the metaphor. And maybe I can kind of remind myself that like, hey, you can throw out some of those chapters of myth that you overlaid on top of reality and start fresh, bro. You ain't gotta you ain't gotta follow that. Anyone else? Oh thanks. Yeah, someone's saying there's there's a little bit too much to try to pick just one. Yeah. Well, then what I'll do is I'll just, before I close out, I just want to leave some space for any closing thoughts, remarks, anything, literally anything that, that comes up for someone before we close. I just want to say thank you, Adam, and thank you for everyone for holding this space. This was a really fun conversation, so I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hoda. And he says, my takeaway is people in New Jersey say the F word a lot. I definitely said it more than I usually do in this space, and I have gotten so good about it. But you're right. I mean, that's that's an interesting takeaway. At least the parts of Jersey I came from. Whew. It's like sailors. That's hilarious. <laughs> see people typing so i just want to hold space for our last thoughts before we close out yeah okay that's funny and he says she loves the idea of the cosmic writing room imagine that as a meditation or a way to manifest yes Yes. Okay, I'm going to say the, one last thing, and then I'll be quiet. But, like, my brain immediately goes to, okay, let's say there's something in my life that I want to change or manifest or create in my own reality. I can go into my cosmic writing room and envision myself writing it into my book of life. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Beautiful. And yeah, Lum says, 
Love the letting go of chapters and dropping the narrative. Oh, who would run to record the meditation? That'd be a fun, that would be a fun guided meditation, Hoda. Yes. So that's fun. So that sounds like several of us might be having some fun inner work around this idea of narrative and reminding ourselves of its fluidity and that the same thing that maybe has bound us in the past can be the same thing that perhaps liberates us in the present. Well, thank you all. This has been a really exciting, um, fun space. And uh, yeah, I appreciate y'all helping me hold the space because I was doing my best, but I feel like I was running around too because it was just too excited. So uh, yeah, I really appreciate all of you so much. And I'm so grateful for these conversations and really um, excited to see what might come up in your fields this week. Um, so thank you all. Have a great rest of your evening or day, depending on what time it is. And I'll see you in the broom or I'll see you next week. Bye y'all.